During the Christmas season, I have been preaching out of the common lectionary um, passages the church has used forever at different seasons of the year. And today we come to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 23 through 25. And then I'd like you to skip down to chapter 4. And we'll read from verses 4 through verse 7. Galatians 3, 23. <clears throat> Before this faith came, faith in Jesus, we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now the faith has come. We're no longer under the supervision of the law. I'll go down to chapter 4, verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. The book of Galatians shares characteristics with the ancient genre scholars know as the letter of rebuke. Of all the Pauline letters that we possess, this is the sternest one. In Galatians, Paul omits the words of commendation that he includes in all of his other letters, even the letters to his troublesome Corinthians. As soon as he finishes the greeting in this letter, Paul goes straight to rebuke. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Now, if we're going to understand today's text, we're going to need a little background. Paul, you remember, was one of the first missionaries to carry the news of Christ outside of Israel. He and his co-worker Barnabas told Gentiles... Gentiles, that the God of Israel had sent his Messiah, Jesus. They described how Messiah Jesus had lived, how he died a sacrificial death, and then rose from the grave. They told Gentiles that Jesus was not only the Lord of the Jews, but the Lord of all, and invited them to believe the good news and become his followers. And many Gentiles responded from around the Mediterranean, Up until that time, almost all the followers of Jesus, including Paul and Barnabas, were Jewish. So now, as Gentiles began entering the church in numbers, an inevitable question arose. How can non-Jews follow the Jewish Messiah? Everyone agreed that they could. But how they were to go about it was fiercely debated. Traditionalists argued that Gentiles could only follow the Jewish Messiah if they first became Jews themselves. That is, if they were circumcised, observed Jewish customs and religious feasts, and ate only kosher foods. But Paul and the liberals, 
that's how people would have thought of them, argued that Jesus was the Savior of the world, not just the Messiah of the Jews, and that Gentiles didn't need to become Jews to belong to their own Savior. Emotions between the two groups ran high, and some angry disputes erupted. The church leaders decided that something had to be done about this. So they called the very first church council to settle the issue. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. It was held in Jerusalem. After hearing from all sides on the issue and prayerfully debating the question, the predominantly Jewish church sided with Paul and Barnabas. Gentiles did not have to become Jew, Jewish to follow Jesus. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to eat kosher foods. They didn't have to observe special days. Now, they ought to be careful not to offend Jews and so make it harder for Jews to believe in their own Messiah, but they didn't have to become Jewish. The decision was formally announced to all the churches in an official letter. You can read about that in Acts 15 as well. Paul was one of the delegates, as was Barnabas, chosen to deliver and explain the letter to churches around the Mediterranean. The Jerusalem Council avoided the mistake that many missionaries made later on, confusing cultural practices with spiritual requirements. You see that really in the 1800s, when many missionaries seemed to think that if people wanted to become Christians, they would have to become English, or at least adopt English customs. So missionaries headed to Africa with the message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and wear clothes and drink tea, and eat crumpets. The first church council was wiser than that. They did not say, be circumcised and change your diet. They said, believe in Jesus Christ and change your minds. Some scholars think that Paul wrote Galatians before that decision was handed down, and that's why he doesn't refer to the Jerusalem council in this letter. But we know from the book of Acts that the debate continued long after the council had reached its conclusion. The other side just couldn't let it go. They had missionaries too, and their missionaries may have stopped telling Gentiles that they had to convert to Judaism, but they did imply that they would be better Christians if they took the additional steps of being circumcised, observing Jewish holy days, and eating a kosher diet. The idea was this, if you really want to be God's person, you'll do these things. Well, who wouldn't want to be God's person? When these missionaries arrived in Galatia, think modern-day Turkey, when they arrived in Galatia, they began attending churches that Paul himself had founded. And whenever they got the opportunity to teach, this was the kind of thing they told people. And the result was confusion. Some of the church members in Galatia were deeply impressed by the rhetoric of these new teachers. They were impressive. And since they really did want to please God, they started observing Jewish feasts and holy days. Now, these are Gentiles, but they started observing Jewish feasts and holy days. Some were even ready to take the final step and be circumcised. That is, they were ready to convert to Judaism in order to follow Jesus. 
But Paul saw that is a huge mistake. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. It wasn't that Paul hated Judaism. He was a Jew. He loved Judaism. Nor did he oppose circumcision. He was circumcised. What he hated was the idea that Jesus was not enough. That faith in Jesus had to be augmented with some other practice. Whatever it might be, including practices outlined in the Mosaic Law for Jews. The law had regulated Jewish life for more than a thousand years. Jewish people were proud of the law, and rightly so. But some teachers made claims for the law that the biblical writers never made. For example, some teachers said that life came by the law, both in this world and in the world to come. In other words, if you want your life to please God in this world, and if you hope to have any life at all in the next, you must keep the law. When Paul heard that that was being taught in Galatia, he was probably far away at the time, he sat down to compose this letter. He starts by reminding the Galatians of the gospel that he brought to them and the authority that he had to proclaim it. Then, beginning with chapter 3, he launches into the main body of this letter, which is a carefully reasoned argument that Gentile believers, like the Galatians, and like most of us, are not required to observe Jewish law. Paul agrees that keeping the religious law is fine for Jews, but that it cannot and never could justify people before God nor provide them with the spiritual power that they need to thrive in the life of following Jesus. Now, that's the argument of the first 18 verses of chapter 3. He then argues that the law, while a great blessing, has a limited role. That's chapter 3, verse 19 through chapter 4, verse 7, and includes our text this morning. In the last part of the letter, he argues that the observance of the law will not only fail to have the desired effect that these teachers promise, it will have quite the opposite effect. It will stifle spiritual growth, and it will lead to bickering and selfishness and anger. That's chapters 5 and 6. It's in our text today that Paul states that the role of the religious law was by necessity a limited one. In verses 19 and 20, he says it was temporary. In verses 21 and 22, he claims that it is incapable of giving spiritual life. Then we come to our text. In verses 23 and 24, he argues that the law served to protect God's people until the coming of Christ. Look at verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. That's how the NIV translates it. In the original language, there is no noun corresponding to the word prisoner. It reads, we were being guarded, it's a verb, we were being guarded under law. And I don't think Paul meant we were being guarded like prisoners, but that we were being guarded like underaged, perhaps wayward, children. The law, he says, locked us up. The word the NIV translates as locked up means to enclose or to shut in. 
the religious law guarded people. It protected them from the behaviors that might destroy them, and it closed them off from influences that might harm them. The law, with its kosher diets and ceremony of purity regulations, certainly did close Jewish people off from much of the world around them. The law, Paul says in verse 24, acted as a custodian to a minor child. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. A literal translation might run like this. The law became a custodian unto Christ, or to lead us to Christ. The Greek word paidagogos, which I just gave you as custodian, shows up later, much later, in English as the word pedagogue. But in English, it has a somewhat different meaning. In English, a pedagogue is a teacher, usually a pedantic or strict teacher. But that was not what the word meant in Greek society. In the first century, a pedagogue was usually a slave, an older slave whose job was to watch over a school-aged child until he entered adulthood. While the pedagogue wasn't a teacher per se, he accompanied that child to school each day, made sure that that child did his work and understood his subjects. Sometimes he disciplined the child. He had a lot of authority. Uh, He told him no. Sometimes he told him yes. Uh, Students, you can imagine, complained about their pedagogues. But often they became very attached to them. After they reached adulthood, it wasn't uncommon for people to free the slaves who had been their pedagogues. Paul says that before Christ came, the law played the role of pedagogue in people's lives. But to Paul, the idea of going back under the supervision of the law, now that Christ had come, was roughly equivalent to an adult going back under the supervision of a babysitter. Now, he valued the law enormously, but he saw that its role as pedagogue had come to an end. Why had it ended? Because Christ had come. His coming changed everything. The law, still highly valued, cherished even, had been released from its supervisory role. Its task was complete now. It had brought people to Christ, which was exactly what God intended all along. And now that brings us to the second part of our text. So look down to chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Christ has arrived on the scene. What we celebrate at Christmas was a spiritual earthquake. Everything was shaken up. At Christmas, everything changed. Look at verse 4. But when the time had fully come, literally, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. In this verse, we have the only time the phrase, the fullness of time, occurs in the Bible. What made this the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus, the time when a Jewish carpenter named Joseph was engaged to a young girl named Mary, what made this the fullness of time? Well, we can only guess. But some things had come together in history in a way that had never happened before this. Rome had conquered 
Okay, put your, your history mindset on. Rome had conquered nations from England through Europe and through North Africa and far into Asia. Wherever Rome conquered, it imposed martial law and order and brought security and built roads. As Rome's sway over the world spread, people everywhere came to use a common language. It might not be their first language, but everyone spoke Greek, the lingua franca of the world. If Christ had come just a hundred years earlier, there would have been almost insuperable obstacles to the spread of the gospel. But at this time, for the first time, in the fullness of time, for the first time in history, the gospel could spread over much of the world in a relatively short period of time and be understood by vast numbers of people from a great variety of cultures. The fullness of time. Not only that, Jewish people who were already familiar with the scriptures and the promise of a redeemer had also spread around the world. There were more Jews at this time living outside of Israel than within Israel. And within a couple of decades, there would be many more because war would force thousands of refugees to flee Israel and what became known as the diaspora, the scattering. And Jews and Christians were sown like seed all over the Gentile world. God made use of these things, of good things like services and roads and peace and evil things, war and exile and prejudice to prepare the world for the coming of his son. And when the time had fully come, he sent his son, he was really divine, to be born of a woman, he was really human, to be born under law, he was really Jewish. Like the teachers who had come to Galatia, Jesus lived under the law. Unlike them, he fulfilled it. Now, there are two different verbs that Paul could have chosen to say that God sent his son. The one he chose carries the idea of sending someone on a mission. Jesus was not just a sweet baby born in Bethlehem. He was heaven's agent sent to earth on a mission which we might refer to as Operation Sons of God. That mission is described in verse 5 in terms of redemption, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. The baby whose birth we just celebrated on Tuesday came to our world with a mission to accomplish, to redeem those under law. And he understood from the very beginning that that mission would cost him his life. Notice the phrase, the full rights of sons. When we see that, we realize that Paul is still thinking along the same lines as he was in chapter 3. Before a young man came of age and was granted his sonship rights, he was guarded by a pedagogue. But when he grew up, the pedagogue's work came to an end. The boy had received his full rights as a son and now had an adult role to fulfill in the family. Christ came, says Paul, so that we could receive our full rights as sons. You could almost say that Christ came so that we could grow up. At the beginning of this chapter, in those verses I didn't read, 
Paul argued that while being in Abraham's line made one an heir of God, until the heir grows up, his status is no different from that of a slave. It's only when he receives the full rights as a son, the word that Paul used referred to a ceremony in which sonship rights were conferred. It was only when he received those rights that a young man was ready to handle adult life and adult life responsibilities as a family member. Christ came to make us sons of God. Now, if you're a woman, you might feel left out by that, or even offended by it. But that is actually very good news for you. Women, too, received the full rights of sons. In the first century, when Paul was writing, women had almost no rights, and their responsibilities were almost all domestic ones. The idea that a woman should receive the rights of a son was just unheard of. Even today, in traditional cultures around the world, African, Middle Eastern, some Asian cultures, if a family has one son and five girls, almost all of the family's goods and honor will go to the son and very little to the daughters. Tim Keller tells of a woman that he met from one of these non-Western cultures who was introduced to Paul's teaching here and quickly saw what we Westerners usually fail to see. Paul's claim, his revolutionary claim, is good news for women. All of us in Christ, both men and women, receive the rights of sons. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, no unimportant children in God's family. Now that we are sons through the mission that Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. God is able to send his spirit into our hearts. Did you get that? Observing the religious law could never make that happen. Which explains why Paul was so upset when he heard about what was going on in Galatia. Some of the Galatians were more enamored with the observance of the law than they were with Jesus himself. But observing the law can never make a person a son of God. Only faith in Christ can do that. And a person who is not a son of God cannot receive the spirit of God. And without the spirit of God, we can't take part in the work of God. The word that Paul uses in verse 6 of God sending a spirit, the same word he used in verse 4 of God sending a son to send on a mission. See, the operation sons of God didn't terminate with the sending of God's son to Bethlehem. It didn't even end on Calvary when Jesus died or when he ascended into heaven. The mission continues. We're in its second phase now. The sending of God's spirit into our hearts. The Spirit supplies us with the guidance and strength we need to carry on the work of God's kingdom. Because we, both men and women, have received the full rights of sons. We have received the Spirit of his Son so that we can fulfill the responsibility of his sons. There's work to do. The presence of the Spirit this is important, adds a Godward dimension to our lives. I should say the presence of the Spirit makes us Godward people. Believers in Jesus 
who've received the Spirit of God are Godward people. The person in whom the Spirit resides will turn to heaven again and again and will look to God and cry out to him. Not the cry of a slave, but of a son. Paul says the Spirit cries, Abba, a sweet Aramaic word we might translate as Papa. The Spirit in us cries, Abba, Father. If a Christian doesn't look to heaven, doesn't cry out to his or her Father God regularly, something is seriously wrong. We must look to God and cry out to him because Operation Sons of God continues and we're part of it. Jesus told his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. They were sent on a mission, as are we, in the service of the kingdom of heaven. Paul's Galatian friends were also sent. But they were so busy trying to outdo, out-religion each other, that they forgot their duty. Instead of completing their mission, they were comparing themselves to each other. Check out all my religious medals. I'm a Sabbath-keeping, kosher-eating, festival-going, circumcision-receiving, pious person. Paul says, you've missed the whole point. Stop trying to impress people, especially God, as if you could. What you have to do is trust in his son, Jesus. In Christ, Paul writes in this letter, when we get towards the end of it, in Christ... Jesus, neither circumcision, remember that is the chief marker that a person follows Jewish law. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The trouble with the teachers who had come into the Galatian churches was not primarily that they were observing law. If that had been all there was to it, Paul wouldn't have had a problem. The trouble was that they were law word, religion word, instead of God word people. A set of religious rules had taken God's place at the center of their life, and that was a disastrous error. And here they were trying to get the Galatians to follow them into their same error. You know what? We can fall into that error too. The popular God substitutes of that time and place were circumcision, Sabbath and festival day observances, and kosher food laws. Now, those things are still around, but other God substitutes might be more popular. Wearing the right clothing, consuming or avoiding certain food and drink, affiliating with the right political party. Let me tell you, none of those things will ever justify your existence to God or make you acceptable to him. Our existence is justified, and our God accepts us because we have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Faith, not a certain version of the Bible, is the true mark of God's people. Faith, not circumcision, Sabbath observance, right foods, right drinks, right clothes, right music, or the right political party is what God is looking for. Faith in Jesus Christ, not in a doctrine, not in a church, not in a denomination, especially not faith in faith. 
is the mark of a child of God. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have such faith? Let's pray. Oh God, keep us from the favorite human pastime of justifying ourselves to ourselves, to you, to others, and instead, by your grace, enable us to trust our master, Jesus, who died for us and rose again. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.